everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Week in APA. I believe this is episode number 86. I I come up with a number all the time, but I'm not really sure if they're chronologically correct. Anyway, it's John Aslan here, as always, your host, and uh, glad you could join me uh, for another version, let's just call it that, of This Week in APA. We have got a great, great podcast. This guy has turned into one of my favorite interviews of all time. He is a uh, graphic designer. He has worked in all fields of sports. Uh, a really interesting guy. Uh, he has designed logos for different teams' franchises, for major events, and uh, you have seen him, I'm sure, on uh, MLB uh, on the MLB Network, MLB.com. He does a weekly podcast with uh, Buster Olney on the ESPN Baseball Tonight programs, uh, and I was fortunate enough to finally be able to get a hold of him and bring him onto the podcast. His name is Todd Radom, and we will have him. Uh, a very a good interview uh, coming right up, so stick around. You're listening to This Week in APA. Welcome back, everybody, to This Week in APA. I am your host, John Azalon, and as promised, I have a very special guest for this episode. Uh, this guy is, by trade, an independent graphic designer, but for a long time in his career, he's been specializing in branding for pro sports franchises and events. He is also an author. Back in 2018, he put out the book, Winning Ugly, a history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn. And he will be coming out with a new book. This one will be called Fabric, uh, The Fa Fabric of the Game. He wrote it with Chris Creamer. It's the stories behind the National Hockey League's names, logos, and uniforms. He also uh, has appeared regularly on the MLB Network with the likes of Brian Kenny. He does a weekly podcast for ESPN's Baseball Tonight with Buster Olney. And uh, for you APA freaks out there who I know that uh, you want to know what this has to do with APA, well, he has been working with John Herson for many years on the look of APA products and advertising. He is an APA Hall of Famer, inducted a couple years ago. And uh, I know that's a long introduction, Todd, but uh, you deserve it. And ladies and gentlemen, my guest for today's podcast Todd Radom. Todd, welcome. John, thank you so much. What a what an amazing intro. We covered a lot of ground, but we're going to cover a lot of more. Uh, I did it all in one breath too. You should be impressed by that. <laughs> you know, you know, I was talking with uh, with John Herson earlier this morning, and uh, he said that in his opinion, you may be the most interesting man on the planet, and that is with all due respect to the Dosecki's guy, but uh, you, you've, you've lived an interesting life, that's for sure. Wow, I mean, that, that is uh, that's amazing praise coming from John, and uh, I'm a big proponent of an interesting life, so uh, I, it's great to hear. 
I've certainly been around the block. Uh, it's part of a, a function of having lived a certain amount of time too, but uh, I, it's a good thing to live up to. Uh, it, well, and, and you certainly have, and we're going to get into a lot of that uh, here during uh, uh, this podcast. First of all, let's let's start out with the work you have done with John. I was kind of surprised how long you've actually been uh, uh, working uh, as kind of the graphic designer for the Appigan Company. Talk about how you got started there and what you do for the company. Yeah, I mean, it has been uh, it has been a long time. I'm you know twelve, thirteen years, something like that. I mean, it's you know. Abba and John Hurston have always been uh, sort of at the core, uh, not, you know, kind of in out, but, but right there uh, for years now. And uh, my recollection is, you know, John reached out and got a hold of me. We clicked right from uh, the get-go, and I have enjoyed working with him and uh, with the app community ever since. Yeah, and, and like I, I think you said, you've been uh, uh, working uh, with him since 2004. So you're right, it has been a, a long, long time. And uh, uh, when I started researching uh, your life, obviously you started out as, a, as an independent graphic designer, but the the scope of what you have covered over your career, uh, it, it's pretty incredible. Kind of touch on some of those uh, uh, facets of your career that uh, we'll be getting into today. Yeah, well, I'll go way back. Uh, when I graduated uh, from, well, first of all, I'll go way, way back, and I'll <laughs> say that I have been uh, fascinated in the what I call the visual culture of sports since I was a little kid. And so what's visual culture? It is uh, uniforms and logos and the stuff that surrounds sports. And baseball has really been at the core of that since I was since I was quite young. Uh, I always say baseball is a game that lends itself to introspection. There are 162 games a year, in most years, not this year, of course. And uh, the games move along at a deliberate pace. So uh, anyway, uh, I attended college in my native New York City, and I started working in book publishing at a time where there were a lot of uh, sports books and baseball books in particular. Mm -hmm. So I designed a lot of covers having to do with this subject matter that was near and dear to my heart. Um, in the early 90s, uh, professional sports leagues really started to professionalize, uh, if you want to look at it that way, their design work and design departments. This was at a time when licensing was booming. Think about all those great minor league logos that date back to the early 90s. Think about starter jackets and, you know, leagues expanding. And I sort of... Uh, you know, got connected uh, into this world, I think, at the right time, and I've been there ever since. And you, you know, and you, you make an interesting point there, uh, and and also you kind of, of, of tug at my heartstrings, too, because I don't think I realized until after uh, John told me about you and told me about uh, the book you wrote, and we're going to talk about that, Winning Ugly, that I am obsessed with team logos, with with uh, uh, the history of sports, especially baseball, um, some of them good, some of them bad. But uh, uh, but but I have really been tied in with that ever since I was a kid. And you mentioned how how sports uh, franchises have uh, gotten into branding very much, uh, uh, especially as of late, but for a while now. And and the one question I wanted to ask you is, what do you think? makes the most recognizable brands in all of professional sports? Do you think it is more the success 
of that franchise or the style of the merchandise that they offer with the logo, uh, etc.? I think it's success and longevity. So the prime examples of this would be, I'll move around in a couple of sports. The you know you start with the New York Yankees NY. It's a lovely symbol and it actually <laughs> dates back to 1877, years before the Yankees were a franchise. Mm-hmm. It was a, uh, a Medal of Valor, which was commissioned by the city of New York. It was designed by the studios of a uh, Lewis Lewis Comfort Tiffany. Yes, that Tiffany. Yeah, that Tiffany. <laughs> and uh, of course, that NY connects generations of great players and generations of fans. You could draw a a straight line from uh, the Yankees of Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, DiMaggio, uh, Mantle, etc., right up through Jeter and Rivera. So there's a ton of equity and a ton of World Series titles that connect this time-honored symbol. If you put that out there today, people would say, eh, you know, it's okay. It doesn't have a lot going for it. There are Mm -hmm. no outlines. There's no detail. but they wouldn't get all jazzed up about it. Uh, in another sport, another example of that <clears throat> would probably be uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs would be one that's a symbol that's evolved over the years. Again, one color, not unlike the Yankees. The Red Wings would be like that. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, winning adds a halo effect to uh, to the looks of our teams. Um, one example of a hot look that kind of came and went but was very influential would be the NBA's uh, Charlotte Hornets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Charlotte Hornets, when they came into existence in the late 80s, you know, introduced teal into our visual landscape uh, across <laughs> right. sports. And, uh, you know, the look was uh, was was incredibly uh, well-received. But uh, what happens, that franchise, they, they, they drew a ton of fans. They never had a, a, an amazing amount of success. And they moved to New Orleans. And then it becomes a very convoluted story, but you know what I'm right, talking about. Right, right, right. I got you. And, and one that jumps out at me, though, that I, at least in my humble opinion, I think is based more on success would be the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, America's team and and the star. And and but before the the Cowboys became a a household name, uh, it, I don't know that they were that popular as far as that logo and, and merchandise sales. Yeah, you're totally right, and it's interesting. The NFL really led the way, and I'm like you. I'm a fan of history of all kinds, student of sports history, and uh, really, you know, the, the fact is that the NFL, uh, there were very few logos on helmets before, say, 1960, mm-hmm. when the Cowboys came into existence. Uh, the Los Angeles Rams uh, were pioneers of this in the late 40s, but uh, most teams look like the Cleveland Browns still do. <laughs> the Cowboys came along, and I think they captured the imagination of America, the 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 cheerleaders, the whole thing, and, you know, think about the Dallas Cowboys logo. It's a simple star. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is, you know, it's got a lot of success. It's been a while, certainly. But there's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of equity that's rubbed off on it, no question. And, and, you know, I think sometimes simplicity is the thing that really sticks in your mind rather than something that's uh, got a lot of traffic to it, you know, too much too much going on in it. But uh, <laughs> uh, the Cowboys certainly is there. I, I, I want to talk about your, your book. Uh, winning ugly you, you published it back in in 2018 simon and schuster um and and of course the tagline is the history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn i'm i'm a big baseball guy i love uh uniforms and logos uh talk a little bit about how you got started with that and what that book encompasses 
Well, first I'll say that uh, the book is going to be released in paperback this ah, September. So uh, Ugly will uh, cross across the, the land, or whatever we want to say once again. So I always say that the, the genesis of this project um, began with the with a uh, an email that I received. I was sitting in JFK Airport in New York, ready to travel to Rome in, with my wife. This was in uh, April 2017. One last chance uh, look at the phone uh, before we were about to get on the plane. And there was an email from the New York Times asking me if I would like to write a, uh, an editorial piece, an op-ed, about baseball uniforms and, you know, what they mean to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it evolved into uh, uh, an editorial which talked about essentially my love for the uniforms that I grew up with, even if they were visually questionable. <laughs> I'm a child of the 70s, and this was this period of great experimentation across all sports, particularly in baseball. Um, you know, think about the, what, what baseball looked like for us students of the game, uh, even if we weren't around then, uh, you know, in 1970 or 71, and compared to what it looked like in, you know, 1980 or 81. Right. So, uh, you know, we expanded upon uh, upon the theme, made it to a book, and uh, you know, questionable <laughs> a lot of questionable <laughs> styles there, John. The yellow Padres, the rainbow guts of the Astros. Yeah. I think that, that uh, they work for some franchises. Certainly, wouldn't apply to all. Yeah. But uh, there's a great deal of uh, nostalgia and good feelings wrapped up in so many of these looks. And you talk about success, the Oakland A's, the dynasty that they were, three straight World Series titles in uh, green and gold, and uh, that's the look of the era. Yeah, and, and you talk about the A's, and you, and you go back to, to even the, the 50s uh, when they went to Kansas City from Philadelphia and Charlie Finley, and you talk about a guy who was quote-unquote colorful in more ways than one. I mean, they always had the most outrageous uniforms. In fact, a lot of the owners uh, in both the American and the National League uh, were a little bit miffed and thought that he was being such a showboat uh, by putting out those those uniforms heck i mean back as early as i believe in the early 60s they had three or four different style uniforms that they would wear periodically and up until then and, and for a long time even after most teams just had a road gray and a home white yep absolutely and i'm actually wearing a, a grand gold kansas city a's t-shirt as we speak <laughs> for no other reason than the fact that i love the logo so 1963, Charlie Finley, uh, you know, a, a uh, marketing genius. We could say a lot of things mm -hmm. about him, but he was a marketing genius. Mm -hmm. uh, outfits is Kansas City Athletics in green and gold, and it shocked the staid baseball world, right? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the Lodge, the, you know, as, as it's been called. Uh, think about what here too, what the world of baseball looked like, and many of the uniforms were beautiful uh, without question, but Maybe they were a little bit boring. So he comes in and just blows the whole thing out of the water. Multiple uniforms, as you said. And it's amazing to me because he really tinkered with the uh, with the look of this uh, each and every year. They changed. Yeah. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to speak with his uh, niece. Uh, and she, she had some very insightful stuff for me. He viewed color in a very different kind of way. It's all there in my book. But uh, there was a great quote that I did see from him uh, from, you know, from, from this era. And he said, 
color is everything when it comes to sports, and he was right. Yeah, and and I think that the the niece you're talking about, I think she wrote a book that I read, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but it was about Philly Bowl. That's it. That was it, and yeah. uh, a great book in that. And you're right; he visualized colors while he was listening to a game, and would actually come up with I uh, come up with with. That's why he would call the managers. He he'd be in Chicago at his at his insurance firm and he would call his brother in California who was associated with the ball club in, in, in some way, I forget how, and tell him, go tell the manager to do this, I, I feel this. And he would get that feeling over the phone and he said he did it by he, he did it by seeing colors in his head. That's crazy stuff, isn't it? Yep, absolutely, and that's a great book. I won't even expand upon it because I think it's worthy of uh, listeners to take a look for her book. Um, but, but uh, yeah, and, and I think, you know, when I think about Charlie Finley, everything else aside, all of the labor battles, yeah. and, uh, you know, the, the but, but uh, he presided over this epic farm system that, again, homegrown talent, won three World Series championships, and he changed the visual look of the game because uh, if, if his fellow owners were laughing at him in 1963, uh, they joined the club 10 years later. Yeah, exactly. He was way ahead of his time. Um, in writing the book, I'm sure you had some favorite uniforms, some least favorite uniforms, some favorite stories associated with teams coming up with names and logos. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I really talk about the fact that uh, people have observed the look of this game in a way that we've been talking about since the very beginnings of the sport. And the Cincinnati Red Stockings, 1868, 1869, uh, what are they known for? They are known for their red stockings. The ladies loved them. They wore them uh, <laughs> very pridefully, and they were really a marketing component of uh, of. of you know, that traveling first professional ball club. Right. So I found some amazing stuff, John, looking at the newspapers from the 1870s and 80s in which, uh, you know, columnists describe the uniforms of the era, sometimes disdainfully, but it really, you know, struck me that people have always cared about the look of the sport of baseball as they continue to do. Um, so a couple of good examples. I don't know, you know, you go back to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple. There were, there were uh, great experiments which took place in the 1880s. Mm -hmm. The Cincinnati uh, Club wearing, uh, you know, these, these alternate uniforms that were really quite vivid and, uh, you know, varied by position, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and then you kind of get into the 1910s, 19-teens, and into the 20s. Things were pretty boring. There wasn't a lot of thought into this. Uh, I talk in the book about uh, a graphic designer named, uh, named Otis Shepard, who uh, really created the look of the Cubs as we know them today, created the, the look of Wrigley Field, was a member of the board of directors for many years of the Chicago Cubs, was Phil Wrigley's uh, art director, so he was responsible for billboards and the marketing of Wrigley Gum, and uh, just you know an amazing visual legacy that resonates today. Yeah, I, and and you know you're you're right. You look back at the history, and and I think you mentioned uh, uh, in the book that the Cincinnati Red Stockings original uniforms were kind of of customed after cricket uh, uniforms uh, over in England, uh, and, and so they borrowed that uh, type of of uniform look and just expanded uh, up through the decades. I'm a, I, I'm from Cincinnati, so I, I'm kind of a a a uh, uh, 
a history buff on on the red stockings and 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 you even go into to uh, uh, names uh, uh, of some sort um, you know back in the 50s I, I recall that the the red the red likes which is really that the red stockings is the original name then they went to red likes then they went to reds to short it but the uh, uh, the communist scare back in the 50s made the reds go back to the red likes for a few years Yes, talk about marketing and talking about wanting to disassociate yourself <laughs> from something controversial, which we're seeing history repeat itself in a different way at this very moment no, in time. It's Washington, D.C., and very true. maybe Cleveland and Edmonton and other places, but, you know, without getting into it, you're right. Uh, the, the Reds, uh, abandoned Reds, became Red Legs for a few years and quietly lapsed back into it. And what happens? They win the National League pennant in 1961. And uh, so much history goes through Cincinnati. John, I can't help but think of the fact that I was in Cincinnati uh, the first week in March, right before everything, mm. you know, our entire world shut down. And I was walking around over by the stadium. And, of course, you know, the history of baseball flows through there. Right. And it was very apparent to me. Yeah, it absolutely does, and uh, it's not going to be the same opening day, which is a national holiday in Cincinnati on Friday as it normally is. But uh, what, what? Let's let's just pick. Uh, you talked about the '70s. What was your favorite baseball uniform in that era? Maybe '60s, '70s, '80s type type. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple. Okay. And favorite could mean you know. We, we all are uh, transfixed by the grease fires, by, by the dumpster fires, <laughs> by rubbernecking at a, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, you know this, this kind of a thing. So I'll throw a couple of them out. Sure. Everything starts with the Houston Astros rainbow look. Oh, this boy. was yeah. a look that was so revolutionary, so distinctive that they wore the same exact uniform both at home and on the road, 162 mm -hmm. games, right? I mean, right. just there was no need to differentiate themselves for uh, play away from home. Uh, this uniform was uh, very, you know, it was designed. It was not the result of an accident. The Astros engaged McCann Erickson, huge advertising agency, to uh, work on their look. And all these years later, you can love it, you can hate it, but I know it's it's held uh, closely in the hearts of people in Houston, and it defines that franchise. Couple of others. The Chicago White Sox. No. Bill Veck purchases the team <laughs> again I know you're for the going. second time. <laughs> yeah, the, the floppy collars, the the shirts worn outside the pants. John, I talk about this in the book. I remember being at uh, opening day at Yankee Stadium in 1978. Reggie Barr is flying all over the place <laughs> as Reggie Jackson hits a home run, and uh, there are the Chicago White Sox in these just totally weird, unusual uniforms. But um, they didn't look like anybody else, that's yeah, for sure. That is true. And, just, and, and I will put one more out there. The San Diego Padres, who have cycled through looks, uh, you know, just at an alarming pace over the years, uh, they were clad, of course, in what Steve Garvey called tacos back in this age, and <laughs> right. they have brought the brown and gold back by popular demand in 2020. Yeah, I, I saw that, and <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how popular or demand uh, <laughs> would would be the the reason for that. But uh, yeah, it is it is funny, and 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 you know, I think a lot of it, and and I want to know if you agree disagree that that it has to do with merchandising. Merchandising has come such a big ticket item for sports franchises, and all they have to do is change up a little bit. And they can make a little more money because now the the fans of that team will want to get the newest look of their ball club. Well, 
I'm going to I'm going to uh, disagree with you to some extent. Uh, we should always remember the fact that in professional sports, for the most part, uh, merchandising revenues are split among all teams. So in the case of Major League Baseball, if the Padres mm-hmm. make a change, that means that the New York Yankees get one-thirtieth of that revenue. When we think about the world of sports in 2020 and beyond, uh, merchandising has taken a step back. Uh, you know, revenues are derived from uh, from broadcast and streaming and things like that. But when a team changes a look, that look gets extended to places that are not easily uh, quantified as far as the monetary aspect of it goes. Uh-huh, think, think about how the Padres can leverage this unique look, whether you and I love it or not, uh, into their ballpark and what it looks like on social media and really you know, speak with a, with a refreshed voice that stands out. So, uh, you know, again, I, I think the revenues on merch are not quite what they used to be, but, uh, you know, it's an important factor, but it really, you know, spreads out in different directions. Yeah, well, point well taken. I, I, I didn't think of it in, in that respect, but that's very, very true. I, I think maybe my favorite uniform, also, I'll go to the 60s because I'm a big fan of the history of, of the 60s because that's when I grew up. The Houston Colt 45s. I love that uniform. I love the hats. Of course, that only lasted a couple years, then they became the Astros. But uh, uh, how was your feeling about the 45s for just a short time they were in existence? John, you got a smoking gun on the logo, right on the uniform, and this incongruous 45S on the caps. And uh, I love it. Uh, there are a couple of things to think about here. Uh, I have always appreciated the fact that when the club made the transition into the Astrodome, they mm. carried forward the navy blue and orange. Yes, it is. Such a great color scheme, and they wear it today. Uh, banging trash cans out there and the whole thing, oh, but we won't even easy, get into that either. Easy. Yep, yep. Uh, but a very handsome look, and I'm going to get all uniform geeky on you here now, and your listeners might uh, glaze over, but part of the beauty of those uniforms for me is the fact that the uniform lettering was chain-stitched. What does that mean? Uh, it is not embroidered on uh, directly with one big piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. Each, each of the letters is comprised of uh, hundreds of little stitches that are dimensional the st louis cardinals still do that mm. and uh, it's a really beautiful look and uh, like i said there's to me there was always a little bit of mystery involved with that 45 s up there and of course last thing about the cold 45s you know they, they changed their name because of the fact that uh, the firearms company uh, mm-hmm. had threatened, threatened them with litigation so were they a firearm were they uh, an animal out of the street that is true i did hear that that's that's an interesting and and funny story well i i i don't want to spoil the book because i'm telling you i can't wait to get this thing uh because i'm going to read it cover to cover and probably more than once so uh we'll we'll leave that there but now i want to get into your new book that you have coming out which kind of dovetails into the old book this one's called fabric of the game it's the stories behind the nhl's names logos and uniforms tell us a little bit about this one you got so I have co-written this book, John, with my buddy Chris Creamer, who runs the the uh, website sportslogos.net. And uh, Chris is located in the Toronto area, a kindred spirit, um, and we have worked on this thing for over three years now. Uh, we started our discussions back in 2016, 2017. Uh, he and I spent a few days in the research center uh, 
the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. So just imagine, you know, this incredible state-of-the-art um, facility where some of the greatest artifacts of the sport are held, including the Stanley Cup. So we looked at old old sweaters and went through periodicals and, uh, you know, we, we discovered the, the reasons behind the names and the looks of every NHL franchise, including the Montreal Wanderers, who played just a handful of games before their arena burned to the ground uh, in 1917. We talk about the Philadelphia Quakers, who played one mm. season. So how do these teams get their names? Because you know, this is the, the fabric of the game, which connects the you know individual fan bases. The New York Rangers, named for Tex Rickard, uh, named after the Texas Rangers, the, the law enforcement uh, outfit in Texas, far away from New York in 1926. So uh, a terrific, terrific book, very lushly uh, illustrated. I did 50 illustrations. We got about 100 other photos in here. It clocks in at, uh, oh, I don't know, 80,000 words. But we discovered amazing things, John. Um, we talk about the origins of some of the names of the teams. One good example, the Detroit Red Wings, of course, were not always the Detroit Red Wings. They moved from substantially moved from uh, Victoria, British Columbia in the mid-1920s, uh, the Victoria Cougars, but they changed their name from Cougars to Falcons and eventually to Red Wings because people in Michigan had a very difficult time pronouncing the word Cougar. Totally serious. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, I think I can see that. I know some people from Michigan, then you, <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> oh, Ohio and Michigan, we just can't escape. No, no, no. <laughs> Well, maybe a little bit, right? <laughs> that, that is that's a great that's a great story. Uh, I, I, let me ask you something here because th this goes back to my childhood too. You know, I had one of those hockey games. You know, the ones with the lovers, and you move the guys back and forth, and oh yeah, you had to. Okay, so I had that, and my game came with the players with the with painted uniforms on. Now, the one team was the Toronto Maple Leafs. The other team. I thought for a long time was a Chicago Blackhawks. I wasn't a huge hockey, professional hockey fan, but I noticed the uniforms had a big C and a H, smaller H in the middle, and I just figured, well, that's Chicago. I, I, it must have been years, Todd, until I realized it was the Montreal Canadiens, and, and, and I, I thought, well, what's the H for? I'm trying to think of where would the H come in, and I, found, I, I think I had to go to the internet to find out that it was for the Habs. I, I, explain that story to me, because I still don't quite understand it. Well, the uh, Montreal Canadiens, we talk about this in the book, uh, date back to, they are the oldest uh, professional hockey franchise, I mm -hmm. believe, in the world, right? So they predate the NHL. Uh, I actually found a newspaper article from, uh, I think it was December uh, 1909, I'm tempted to say, uh, in which, you know, it's a French newspaper, we, we had the image of it in there, and, you know, New, new hockey team in Montreal, the name of the team will be Canadiens. So a couple of things to talk about, John. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, uh, the, there's such a rich cultural history that, yes. you know, when I look at that logo, I think of French-speaking Canada, yeah. and just like we, we talked earlier about the, uh, you know, the fact that the Yankees NY connects the generations and, and oh, connects yeah. the, uh, the, the, the great teams. Right? I mean, the same yeah. certainly applies here. So, uh, a great deal of discussion uh, as to whether or not that H is all about habitant 
or uh, the word hockey. Uh, I'm going to leave that out there and hope that people buy the book. But uh, <laughs> yeah, good, good, good move. But 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 I, but I but I will say that uh, it's interesting, and we do discuss this in the book as well. The uh, club originally had an A in the in the middle of their uniforms. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, that reflected the original uh, official name of, of the uh, team. Um, they wore C's on their uniforms back in the early 1900s, before the NHL, but uh, they were part of the National Hockey Association. So uh, they replaced the C with an A uh, after, uh, I think it was 1913 or 14, somewhere 1916, they became the Club de Hockey Canadien. So uh, they went from A for Athletique, to H for hockey, so oh. it is about hockey. Oh, it is about hockey. Okay, now, now, now I'm. Getting... I was, you know, I, I couldn't leave that hanging out there, John. I was like, eh, let people buy the book, and I just had to, I had to put it out there. So it is actually for the word hockey. Well, I, I don't think that's going to hurt from book sales. I think you're going to do uh, just, just <laughs> fine in book sales. So when is it, when is the hockey book coming out? It is due out in early November. It'll probably be uh, a little bit before then. But uh, one of the great things I'm really excited about, John, are forward uh, by Lanny McDonald, who, of course, iconic, iconic player in so many respects. Uh, and he is currently the chairman of the board of the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. So talk about a great player and a great individual being associated with our project. It's been, uh, we, we had a couple of wonderful conversations with him and uh so happy to have him uh on board and writing the forward i'll tell you can't i, I can't wait to get both of those books uh, no doubt about it and uh because uh, i just I, like you I, I love the history of sports and uh i'm sure i'm going to get a lot of it uh from both of those publications um <clears throat> let's shift gears a little bit at least sports um you had a lot to do with the beginning of big three basketball the three-on-three professional leagues talk a little bit about that yeah that was you know just such a fascinating unusual project you know, you can imagine, and your listeners can imagine, you know, there are different types of uh, branding for sports, right? Couple, couple of examples before we jump into big three. Uh, think about an expansion team or a team that's moved, starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. I created the look of the Washington Nationals when they moved from Montreal, mm -hmm. and that is different from uh, you know uh, rebranding the Angels, for instance. I did the Angels back in 2001, going into 2002. In the case of Big Three, it was an opportunity to create an entire professional league, one that was going to be broadcast nationally on you know major tv <laughs> and to think about every single aspect of uh of design so going beyond the logos and uniforms i designed the court uh i designed the championship trophy uh and all the time i worked with ice cube who's you know wow. super interesting guy mm -hmm. very in tune uh with uh with visuals actually studied architectural drafting as a young man so you know we will have these conversations about negative space and proportions and things like that mm -hmm. and uh so like i said uh, a really fun and unusual opportunity i'm sad they're not playing right now because yeah. of the the current state of the world yeah it is sad and i and and i used to watch those and and you're right it, it's a very it was it was a very colorful sport the uniforms were, were out there the names were great uh, but uh, yeah, maybe, and, and I'm sure at some point in time we'll get back to that. And, and you mentioned things like leagues and, uh, and that sort uh, of uh, design. Uh, you not only design for teams and franchises, but also for certain events. 
Yeah, and they really are very different, John. Uh, you know, I've designed a Super Bowl logo, for instance, and when you think about a Super Bowl or a World Series um, or an All-Star game, these things come and go, and then they are part of history, and we've talked so much about history, whereas a team identity hopefully has some staying power. But uh, these are fun. They allow me and designers like me to lean into, you know, the look of a certain moment and a look of a certain place. You know, an all-star game might take place in a, in a particular city that you could really embrace some uh, fun iconography, architecture, you know, typography, whatever. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, they're always a fun, different challenge, and uh, I enjoy that part of it very much. Well, you are a very busy, busy man. I tell you, you got a lot. You got a lot on your plate. But uh, I, I know another thing about you is that you're you're a huge baseball fan, and and again, like me, you have traveled to quite a few different ballparks. You claim fifty two different ballparks over your life. Um, obviously, some that aren't here anymore, like myself. Uh, but uh, talk about some of your favorites maybe a couple of your favorites and maybe a couple of ones that you weren't that fond of all right i want to i want to hear some of yours too John. Yeah, so here, here's, here's one of the benefits of growing older the fact that uh, we can you know lay claim to have seen places that no longer exist and of course baseball experienced this gigantic stadium boom mm -hmm. in the uh, in the early 90s up until the the turn of the century but uh yeah i mean some you know it was you know, just tremendous to see games in places like Old Comiskey Park, Old Tiger Stadium. I have been to all three iterations of Yankee Stadium, mm. you know, from the very first to the renovation to the current one. And then there were the not-so-great ones, the Arlington Stadiums and Exhibition Stadiums of the world, right? Yeah. Which were very uh, utilitarian, uh, not a lot of creature comforts. Always, you know, loved County Stadium in Milwaukee, went to games there several times. Baltimore, right? The fact that this place existed in this neighborhood across the street from a high school, and even your cookie-cutter, uh, donut-shaped riverfront stadium in Cincinnati, John. So what do you have? <laughs> well, I'll start with that cookie-cutter uh, circular stadium in Cincinnati. I worked there as a groundskeeper from 72 through 79, so I got to see a lot of the big circle, the big donut, we used to call it. <laughs> but, but I mean, it was like every, I mean, it was like probably another seven, eight stadiums in Major League Baseball. Atlanta, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, they were all became the football slash baseball stadiums. And there was no, and, and you know, and even at the time, because you know, I was I went to Old Crosley Field many times, um, but then to go to Riverfront, it was like, oh my goodness, look at this! This is the mecca of baseball now. But you know, when everybody else came in with the same type of stadium, there was no ambiance to it. It was just concrete and very, very, very hot turf. And I can tell you that from experience, because in the summer, that turf would get to be 120, 130 degrees, and just running across it was was uh, was no fun whatsoever. But I, I, I was a big fan of the uh, new ballparks that came out that kind of uh, paid an homage to the to the old ballparks, the um, uh, the different dimensions, the odd dimensions. I like the terrace in Houston because Crosley Field used to have the terrace uh, in left field. Now they took that out, I believe, uh, yep. in Houston's new stadium. But um, but uh, yeah, and you know the one thing, and and you're a New Yorker, and the one thing that I kick myself 
for almost on a daily basis is never going to Yankee Stadium. Now, it probably would have had to have been to renovate a Yankee Stadium because I, I really wasn't traveling that much uh, earlier in my life. But I, just to be in the ballpark of Ruth and Gehrig and, and, and Whitey Ford and, and uh, Wade Hoyt and just the great, great history that was in there, I, I, I can't describe the loathing I have in myself for not making the trip out there because I, I really think I, I would have loved it. Yeah, I mean, John, you talk about hallowed ground, yeah. uh, and you know, Yankee fans can be a certain way. I mean, there's no question no. about that. And uh, but I do think that again, that piece of you know, one of the you know, we, we talk about. Uh, we'll go back to the beginning of the conversation with you know, interesting days and things like that. Uh, I did a photo shoot in the summer of 2000 with Don Zimmer for his book. Mm. So uh, I just remember this amazing day at the old stadium. Uh, being in the dugout with him, just, you know, just me and him, he's in uniform, mm -hmm. and him telling me stories, and then we walked across the outfield, it was uh, an off day, uh, and just walking across center field, right, mm -hmm. knowing that this is where, this, this piece of ground is where Mickey Mantle, yeah. Joe DiMaggio, and yeah. so many great Yankees, I mean, it, it was really very moving to me, and I felt the same way, I've been very privileged, I've had the opportunity to be on the field at uh, Fenway and Wrigley, Dodger mm -hmm. Stadium, a lot of places and you know there's nothing like history as we keep saying right throughout yeah. this conversation it is real it's very tangible and it's very moving uh, well you mentioned don zimmer don zimmer cincinnati boy born and raised right yep. here in cincinnati and uh boy i'll tell you what he he was a guy that could tell a story um but <laughs> but you you know in another stadium you mentioned that i am i am absolutely going to get to his dodger stadium when you really think about it, third oldest stadium in all the major leagues, it's hard to believe, but uh, but yeah, that's a that's a ballpark I really want to get to. I've been to uh, of the of the ballparks uh, that are in existence today, uh, 15 of them. So I, I I got quite a few more to go. But I, I you know there there are, there are some I I wasn't that impressed with with of course Tropicana, which everybody uh, really uh, uh, seems to despise. But I'll tell you what, a ballpark that I was even less impressed with was uh, the one in Miami. I did not like that at all. It seemed like more of an arena than it did uh, a stadium. Well, you know, it's interesting, John, because as you mentioned off the top, I do the uh, ESPN Baseball Tonight podcast yeah. every week with Buster Olney, and this mm -hmm. year we're discussing stadiums every single week. Oh, good. Uh, and, and we have just a, a conversation like you and I are having now, and so we're, we're rolling through the divisions and through the leagues. We're in the AL East now, but we talked about Miami earlier in the season, and I've been there several times, and I'll, I'll push back slightly, and I'll say that uh, it is a ballpark that fits its city. Um, mm -hmm. Every week, Buster and I talk about a sense of place. The fact that, yes, Baltimore, you know, because of the warehouse, because it's connected to downtown, it really feels like Baltimore. That ballpark in Miami, uh, it came about under less than great circumstances uh, in terms of how it was financed. The team that plays there has not necessarily been good. The home run sculpture out there was not very well received. But uh, it's a pretty unique baseball experience. And I would say that the, you know, the architectural details are... Uh, uh, are pretty nicely put together. It's not traditional. Uh, it's a little bit weird, but if that team ever won, 
I don't know. Maybe we need to go there together, take a look at it with fresh eyes, when we're able to travel again, right? Fair enough. Fair. I, I did know they had a uh, uh, a dancer out in center field. I, they had a bar, <laughs> I, and I kept thinking, I'm thinking, what is that? And then I walked around there, and sure enough, there was a, a I guess what you would call the go-go dancer of today out there uh, performing at the bar. But I, one of the best things I liked about it, though, and I didn't realize till I went there, was that it was built on the site of the or old Orange Bowl, uh, and 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 that just brought back memories for me. I, I I thought that was very interesting. But the other thing I didn't like to was the surroundings. There was really nothing around it, like the bar restaurant uh, type of uh, combinations that you see in a lot of ballparks today. Yeah, I agree. It's not an easy place to get to in that respect, and no. I think we can both agree that you know some of the base, uh, best baseball experiences. San Diego would be a prime example. Mm -hmm. uh, it is surrounded by you know it's easy to get to a lot of bars, restaurants, hotels, everything like that. The ones that are further out are generally you know, with the exception maybe of Kansas City, are uh, you know not not in tune with the times. Maybe Atlanta too, but that's a whole other situation. Well, you know, Atlanta. I was there the first their first year. That was uh, two years, or I guess three years ago. I guess now. Um, but uh, I, I thought, and it wasn't really quite finished yet. But I thought they had uh, a good concept with all the uh, uh, the the entrance to the ballpark, the bars, the restaurants, which seems to be, as I said, uh, the big thing. You want to kind of market that as well. But uh, uh, but I, yeah, I, did, I, I thought that was a pretty nice ballpark. It's kind of you know Atlanta, and I've been there several times. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a real estate development that happens to have a ballpark there. <laughs> uh, that, that's <laughs> but, a good point. But yeah, I stayed down there. I actually attended a conference uh, last year uh, that was hosted by the Braves. Uh, so I was out there for three days. Stayed, you know, stayed there. Went to all these facilities, restaurants, bars. You know, attended this thing, which was partially in the ballpark. And uh, yeah, this is this is the the wave of the present and future, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right about that. Um, before we go, and, I, and again, I really appreciate the time you've taken to to do this podcast. I know the Apple community is going to love it, but. Uh, uh, let's touch a little bit about something that we we barely touched on earlier, and that is um, franchise uh, uh, logo and team name changes. Um, it, you know, the, the Washington Redskins said they're going to change their name. The Cleveland Indians are, are are talking about it in college and in high schools all around the country, uh, even before the recent uh, 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 situation that, that we've come upon, uh, have changed their names due to uh, so-called offensive names. Um, how do you, th and, and, and you being a historical guy, how do things like this affect the franchises um and and i mean just for the redskins and they still haven't come up with their name yet as far as i know but how does this affect the franchises the fans outlook of these teams yeah i mean it's an interesting and you know it's an interesting question it's fraught with all kinds of controversy without question but i'm going to look at it in a couple of ways john and i think that the washington example is you know the most outsized and here's my own personal opinion sure. you know I, I feel like uh words uh can words can change over the years you know the meaning of words and the significance of words mm -hmm. and designations can change uh in the case of uh, the nfl washington you know, this was going to happen, and now is the time. I think that they can retain their colors, 
which are very ownable and own the history and come up with something new that everybody can embrace. And let's face it, we live in a world uh, now more than ever where nobody's going to be unanimous on agreeing on anything. But um, in thinking about these changes, which are coming fast and furious, you know, the team should not be thinking about they shouldn't be thinking about you, me, or, you know, people. <laughs> they should be thinking about everybody, but they should really be focusing upon what this is going to be like 40, 50 years from now. Right. And maybe, you know, some 10-year-old kid who's a fan of the team. And, yeah, you want to bring people along, take them by the hand. You want to be inclusive and, and you know, not piss anybody off, quite frankly. But uh, I think it's impossible to have unanimity on this. And I think that the world moves forward. And uh, sports is a is a positive and unifying thing. So I, I think that these are, you know, these situations are filled with opportunity. So to be uh, thinking forward as opposed to backward is probably a good thing. Yeah, and uh, and I think uh, we have just uh, maybe touched the tip of the iceberg uh, uh, with these things. And I think uh, a lot of uh, sports franchises are going to have to look very deep inside and see, uh, you know, what they may or may not be comfortable doing or may and may not be comfortable doing with the people who they, you know, so-called are, are, are offending. And, and it is. I think it is. I think it's a subject that needs to be discussed. I think you need to take in consideration a lot of different opinions and, like you said, as polarized as we are in this country today, um, it's going to be tough to come up with a consensus because nobody seems to want to uh, come up with a consensus in any way, shape, or form in this country. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to point out something that we talked about a little earlier in the conversation, John. You know, winning heals a lot of ills. Mm. And in the case of uh, Washington, you know, this is a franchise that you know, it has not had a lot of success, to say the least, yes. in a long time. What's your timing on this? Uh, Cleveland, a uh, little bit of a different situation there. Um, you know, it's been a successful team. They were in the World Series in 2016, of course. But uh, but I think a really interesting example of this, and I don't think you can replicate it, is the Spokane Indians of minor league baseball. Hmm. They worked with the local Native American community some years ago and got them on board. Uh, and I think uh, the Florida State Seminoles did the same thing, if I'm not mistaken, right. uh, of, of, okay, you know, this is what we're going to call ourselves, but how can we work with with this community and honor them in a relevant way? And in the case of Spokane, they use their, their native language on their uniforms. It's a fascinating thing. Oh, so, you know, the discussions about uh, cultural appropriation, being offensive, again, you know, Boy, that's an expansive topic and not, uh, you know, if we put 100 people in a room, you know, we'd probably have a lot of uh, a lot of room for disagreement. But where is the opportunity to bring people together? And I think that, uh, you know, again, with things moving as quickly as they are, uh, I look at it as an opportunity for yeah. these teams uh, and, and to harness it into something positive. Uh, I think that's a great point. It's all about the approach you take. Uh, you know, yep, to either yep. stick or, or make changes. Todd, I, I, I want to get your information out there. If anybody needs to reach you or get information on you or find out when these books are coming out, I know you got a website. I know you got a Twitter account. Tell us where, where we can reach you. I appreciate it, John. So uh, it's toddradom.com, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M.com. That's the website. I am at Todd Radom on Twitter. Uh, always have a, a stream of consciousness uh, happening there that centers around the, the visual culture of sports so join in the conversation and uh, you know, I appreciate it uh, you got it my friend and I'm, I'm going to be listening to those podcasts now with you and Buster especially about the stadiums uh, and, I, and I may email you if I disagree with you so I'm going <laughs> to 
I'm going to keep warning you about that, and I, and I definitely... That, 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 that's a far less polarizing topic, John, but we can, you bring it on. That would be great. Uh, but I, I'm definitely going to uh, get both of the books coming out, and when I get them, I'm going to send them to you. I want you to sign them. Is that going to be okay? Can we do that? That would be. I would welcome the opportunity, and I appreciate that, too. <laughs> you got it. Uh, Todd, uh, again, thanks Thanks for your time. It's It's been a great discussion. John Hurston may be right. You may be the most interesting man on the planet. But, uh... <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation. I will say that uh, every time I speak with John, and this has been the case for those 16 years, whatever it's been, uh, it turns into a one-and-a-half-hour conversation about oh. all kinds of things, and you know that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, interesting knows interesting, so that that's great. What when, a great opportunity and a terrific conversation. Whenever I see his name uh, come up on my phone, I have to figure if I can carve out 45 minutes to an hour. So I, that's, how, <laughs> that's usually how that works when it comes to John. Todd, once again, thank you very much. We'll be looking forward to your new book, Fair of the game and also remember folks out there winning ugly uh, a great book on the history of uh, baseball uniforms uh, we hope to have you on again Todd I, I hope you, uh, we can uh, figure out a time to get that done but thanks again and we really appreciate it anytime John it's been a great conversation I appreciate it thank you that was Todd Radom and uh, he's got a new book coming out called fabric of the game talking about the hockey uniforms and its history so be sure to look that up and uh, he just gave you his email uh, or his no he didn't give his email he gave us his website address and uh, uh, you can get all the information from there we're gonna take a break when we come back we'll wrap things up from this week in episodes stick around John that was terrific And welcome back, everybody, to This Week in APA. And I, once again, I'm your host, John Aslan. How about that? How about that, Todd Radom? He really knocked it out of the park with that interview. Uh, just some great information. Uh, can't wait to get uh, both of those books. I, I, I was talking with John Herson uh, a while ago, and he was talking to me about that book. It came out, of course, in 2018, the, uh, the Winning Ugly book. Uh, and me being a huge baseball uh, fan and uh, a guy who loves the history of baseball, uh, hadn't still hasn't haven't gotten around to get it, but I am going to, and and also looking forward to uh, the bookie, uh, the bookie, the uh, <laughs> the hockey book. I guess there's a little combination of that. Um, fabric of the game uh, to find out about those different sweaters. And wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? Did that interview yesterday? And today, news on two franchise, professional franchise uh, hockey uh, and football names and logos. The Washington, formerly the Washington Redskins, have said that they are going to uh, play out the 2020-2021 season as the Washington football team. Uh, they are not going to have an official, a long-standing name for the club uh, until next year. They need a little more time. Uh, they're going to poll their alumni, their football alumni, their football fans to see what name would be uh, a best fit and appropriate for uh, the franchise. So they're going to go with the Washington football team. And uh, you know, don't be 
uh, cynical about it. I think they just want to make the proper decision and one that's best for the fans and the uh, franchise as well. They're going to keep the colors uh, on the helmets. I think this is interesting. They are going to have just the player's number in the gold. Uh, I believe the uh, uh, Redskins' uh, main colors are crimson and gold. And so I, I think that's going to be a pretty nice look. And it's going to be uh, a lot uh, like the uh, uh, Alabama Crimson Tide, who use their numbers on their helmets uh, and no logo uh, of sorts. And, and so I think I think it'll be a good look. Now, what they end up coming up with, uh, for a, uh, a definitive name at a later time, I don't know, but they're going to discuss that, and I think that is, uh, I think it's an interesting choice, and I think it's the right choice. Then I come to find out, and we just talked to Todd Radom about his new hockey book that's coming out, the uh, Seattle franchise, the new Seattle hockey franchise, and entered their name into the fray today. They are going with the Seattle Kraken. Uh, a kraken being a mythical sea beast. I, I, at least I assume it's mythical. I don't know that much about the deep seas. but uh, uh, And I heard that they have a really interesting promo video that uh, I have yet to see. But uh, it seems like uh, they are really excited about it. And so uh, Seattle comes up with the kraken. Uh, Washington uh, football, the Washington football team, and all a day too late to ask Todd Radom about it. And who knows, maybe he had a hand, at least in the Seattle Kraken uh, uh, logo design and name. I don't know. We'll have to check back with him uh, uh, soon to find out if that would be the case. But anyway, just some interesting news. Also, the uh, baseball season begins tonight. The uh, defending champ Washington Nationals are taking on the New York Yankees and the Dodgers and Giants play later. So baseball will officially be underway tonight. I'm going to watch. I know a lot of people are pissed out there about the way baseball's handled things. Uh, I really don't care. It's going to be an odd season. I'm not sure if I'm going to uh, classify this as a uh, legitimate world championship team, whoever wins. But it'll be interesting. It'll be fun. And what the heck? It's baseball. So I hope you get to enjoy that tonight if you are so inclined. And uh, with that, that's going to wrap things up. I hope you all enjoyed the podcast. My thanks again to Todd Radom uh, for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast. It was great. And if you want to be a part of the podcast, uh, send me a voicemail on the Anchor Podcast site. You got 60 seconds to let me know what you think some ideas for the podcast, whatever it is, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, So go ahead and do that. Or you can always send me something uh, through Facebook. Until next time, this is John Azalon saying thanks for uh, being a part of the This Week in Alpha podcast. And we'll check you out on the next episode. This is John Azalon. And I approve this podcast. Eh, We're going to get used to that coming up very, very soon. Talk to you later, everybody.